Welcome to a Friday night edition of Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. I very rarely speak to you on a Friday. How are you doing? Do you have that Friday feeling? Do you get that Friday feeling? I do get that Friday feeling. And all I want on a Friday is to hang out with you. But you keep telling me that's prime time and you're not going to spend it with me. <laughs> you get Mondays, babe. Everyone everyone loves Mondays, don't they? I thought that was how everyone's emotion towards a, a Monday is, is how wonderful they are. That's why we have you on Monday's show, <laughs> uh, to create that association in people's heads. Um, coming up on tonight's show, Hollywood actors walk out of their own premiere as a strike begins. The latest heat wave to hit Europe and the continued effects of climate change. We're also going to be talking about super white paint. And should MPs really have second jobs? We'll be discussing the worst offenders. First story. There's been continued scrutiny today of Rishi Sunak's public pay plan. That's partly because the pay increases are well below what some unions are asking for, including the junior doctors. But it's also because for many departments, it's still unclear where the money to pay for the increases will come from. So far, only the Education Secretary has come forward with an explanation of how her department will meet the commitment. So what usually happens in, in budgets within the departments, and we have quite a big education budget, we do spend a lot of money on education, um, what usually happens is you have programmes which um, you estimate either the demand-led forecast or how, how quickly you're going to deliver them. And what happens in, in, in government budgeting is if you don't spend it all, and very often you don't spend it all because you overestimate how quickly you can roll things out, etc., then all that money usually goes back to the Treasury. And what's happened in, in this case, and the Treasury have, have worked with us to enable us to do that, is they've given us the flexibility to take those uh, anticipated underspends and to move them into teachers' pay. So basically, we've gone through every single line, every single budget, painstakingly. I mean, you know, I've worked in business for 30 years. I've done this a lot and we've gone through and we've anticipated where we will not, um, you know, we wouldn't meet the forecast and we will move that into, uh, into school funding. So that commitment from Gillian Keegan is how she won the endorsement of union leaders for the deal. So when it comes to education, teachers pay or won't be paid for by taking money from elsewhere in the school's budget. But in other departments, it's still much less clear where the money will come from. Matthew Taylor is head of the NHS Federation. He sounds pretty worried. I think we're going to need to see a lot more about the figures here, yeah. because if this does result in further cuts um, in the health service, then it's going to impact on uh, patients. And it's also going to have an impact on the Prime Minister's own pledge to reduce waiting lists. Yeah. Do you know if you're getting the money from the, you know some of the money from the you know increased migrant visas and and health surcharging so have they told you that that's coming to the health service no we're not clear about that so that right. money seems to be available across the public sector as a whole so uh, uh, on first glance it, it doesn't seem as though this is going to fill the gap um and to be honest in the past there have been a number of occasions over the years when we've been told that pay increases are going to be fully funded and it's often not quite worked out like that. So we do need to interrogate this extremely carefully yeah. because the health are already in a situation where its resources were extremely stretched. A good point there. The resources are extremely stretched. I think everyone is aware of that. And what we heard yesterday from Rishi Sunak is the idea that departments would be asked to make efficiency savings. I think it's really, really important to make the point here that cuts can actually have the opposite effect. So cuts can actually tend to make things less efficient. And that's because to protect frontline services is often capital projects, so that's long-term investment that gets the chop. 
This chart shows capital spending over time in the UK compared to Austria, Canada, Denmark, Finland, France, Sweden, and the US. As you can see, we spent a relatively low amount of our GDP on capital investment in healthcare in 2000, but it went up under new labor. That's when overall budgets were increasing. And by 2010, we were near the middle of the pack. However, once the coalition comes in and austerity begins, capital spending in healthcare collapses. And by 2020, the UK is investing well below all the peer countries included in the study. The result is that we have crumbling hospitals, which makes effective care very difficult. And we also have way less high quality diagnostic equipment than peer countries. This is from the King's Fund. It shows how many CT and MRI scanners different countries have per million people. Japan is the highest with 166 per million. The US and Australia are next with 85 and 84 per million. Countries like France are considerably lower with 33 per million. But the UK is way out at the bottom with only 16 per million. Now, if you make workers work with bad tools or fewer good tools, they are going to be less effective at their jobs. So when you hear Kate Andrews on Question Time saying we're employing ever more frontline staff and still getting poor outcomes, well, this is probably why. Ash, I'm quite worried about this, right? So we heard Rishi Sunak yesterday say this is what they're going to do is get efficiency savings. And there is some logic to that, right? You can, you can see why it seems like a coherent argument. What we're going to do is we're going to say you need to still lower the, the waiting list, but you're going to have a little bit less money to do it. And the argument there is if they've got a little bit less money to do it, they'll have to work out how they can be more efficient. But I think, you know, and, and so cut corners or at least cut the, cut the fat stuff that they don't think is absolutely necessary. I think what actually is more likely, though, is that you end up sort of saying, well, we've got to constantly firefight. All our money has to go to frontline services right now. We can't afford to think about five years' time. And then what you have is no money on capital spend. And that's why you see this sort of crisis of productivity in the public sector, because the hospitals are falling down, the schools are crumbling, we don't have any scanners, which obviously means that you're going to be a less efficient worker when you, when you go to work. Well, I think you're exactly right to point this out, because we saw that what was being framed as efficiency savings, i.e. the austerity program of 2010 onwards, is that it actually really wasn't efficient. There wasn't public sector bloat. You know, it wasn't as if, um, you know, you had local authorities up and down the country spending all their money on, you know, cocaine, caviar and champagne. What you had was a degree of emergency capacity and long term planning. And those were the things that David Cameron and George Osborne, as well as their friends in the right wing press, very successfully managed to denigrate as wasteful spending. Whereas as anybody who's heard the morality tale of the grasshopper and the ant knows, it's actually quite prudent to invest in the future, to think about contingencies, to think about emergencies. So we've already had one round of so-called efficiency savings. And what that resulted in, as you've pointed out, is crumbling infrastructure, declining equipment, and that's had all kinds of outcomes in terms of health. We have been slipping behind comparable countries and things like cancer survival rates, um, in part because we've got a staffing issue, a beds issue, uh, you've got a technology issue, and you've also got the overall effect of austerity, making a nation's health worse because you're putting people in more impoverished situations. You're cutting the amount of state support for people with long-term illnesses or disabilities. Um, 
you're worsening their health, you're making it more likely that they're going to uh, enter into a clinical setting with comorbidities, which makes their cases more complicated. And that's why you've seen things like life expectancy growth stalling, and even in some places going in reverse, where austerity and deprivation has hit the hardest. So we've seen all of this play out the first time around. And this time around, I don't think it's going to be any different. And this business of budget reallocation, okay, we're not going to get any new spending commitments overall, but what you get is the Department of Health and Social Care, the Department for Education, moving around money that in the Department for Education's case, they're arguing they wouldn't have spent anyway, but here will be taken out of other spending commitments. It's literally just robbing Peter to pay Paul. and. I think you've got to look at why the Tories are doing this. Sure, you can say that this is coherent with their economic orthodoxy. They're saying you've got to get the debt to GDP ratio down. And you're saying that you want you know, more public sector pay. Here it is. We're trying to achieve both. I also think that it is their intention politically to play off patients and NHS staff because the pitch which is being made to the public is, yeah, right, they've been on strike the whole time. We're offering them this pay rise. And that's going to come out of scanners. That's going to come out of diagnostics. That's going to come out of, uh, you know, technological improvements. Um, even when it comes to education, there aren't many teachers who look around them and go, you know what, I've got all the resources I need to teach. I've got you know, the best infrastructure possible. I've got the best classroom equipment possible. You know, I think there are lots of teachers who go, oh, we'd really like that money being plowed back into our schools. But again, it's playing off parents and pupils against teachers. You go, well, that money's gone towards their wages. Um, And I think you've got to remind yourselves that the unions have been making a holistic case for more spending. So, of course, they're talking about pay and conditions. They're talking about pay and conditions because that's integral to the well-being and the demands of their members. But they're also talking about it because what we've seen in the public sector is a staff retention crisis because pay has lagged uh, far below the awards that are given in the private sector. You've had a massive staff retention issue. So the argument is by holding on to to staff, teaching staff, uh, clinical staff, that you're going to you're going to improve the quality of the service. But particularly in the in the NHS, you've got doctors, you've got nurses, you've got healthcare assistants, you've got porters saying, actually, we need more of everything. We do need better technology. We do need better buildings. We do need more administrative support as well. We need all of these things. And instead of having a serious government who's going, okay, we're going to invest more in the NHS by shifting the tax burden where, you know, is most efficient and most fair. You're getting the wealthy to pay a greater proportion in tax so that you can fund these really critical public services. Instead, what they're doing is, okay, you can have, you know, X many doctors staying in the NHS and not moving to Australia, but it means you're not going to get a new MRI machine. You're not overall necessarily going to have a vast improvement in healthcare outcomes. Yeah, I think that's really important, that political point, because obviously, you know, the argument the government make is that we couldn't possibly um, get extra money to these departments because that would cause inflation. Now, inflation isn't really caused by wages or departmental spending anyway, so it's not a great argument. But even if you were to say, no, we, we don't want to go into more debt 
at this point in time because of inflation. What can you do? You can increase taxes on rich people and then that won't be inflationary at all. So anytime you say, oh, we have to, we have to really tighten our purse strings because of inflation, why don't you just tax the rich a bit more because of inflation? Then they'll stop using their enormous wealth to keep pumping up the price of, of houses in London, for example. Let's go straight on to our next story. On a global level, last week was the hottest on record. And this week, well, those record-breaking temperatures have hit Europe. This was a fairly terrifying report from the BBC. Sightseeing was a dangerous business in Athens today. Tourists were given emergency water supplies to help cool down. A heat wave named after the three-headed dog that guards the gates of Hades in Greek mythology is driving temperatures across southern Europe to truly hellish levels. We'll deliver 30,000 bottles of water today, says the head of the Greek Red Cross. It was suffocating. Yeah. I mean, we are from Washington, D.C., and we get a lot of heat there, but it's not like this. The air temperature in Italy could even top the all-time 48.8 Celsius record next week. And this satellite map of Spain shows surface temperatures have reached 60 Celsius in places. And temperature records have also been smashed in parts of Canada, the US and China. At the same time, Antarctic sea ice is at the lowest extent ever recorded. And there have been terrible floods too. Just look at the mayhem caused by torrential rain in India. Last week was the hottest week ever recorded. Climate scientists say the heat and the rain is driven in part by global warming. This shows estimated average global temperatures over the last 800,000 years. Look how the world went in and out of ice ages. Now let's add in carbon dioxide levels and look how closely they track the temperature. And just look how carbon dioxide spikes here at the end of the graph. Now let's zoom in to the last 12,000 years. Look how the world gradually warms, then temperatures level out, becoming much more stable than during the Ice Age. Now we human beings, we've been around for about 300,000 years, but it's only in this period of warm and stable temperatures that we learned to grow crops and civilization developed. Now let's look at the last 2,000 years. Temperatures remain stable until just over there at the end of the graph. The steam engine was invented, the industrial revolution took off, man-made carbon dioxide emissions started to increase, and just look what happened to global temperatures. And that was, I mean, I introduced it as a pretty terrifying report. I thought it was very effective as well, especially that last part. So he's saying human civilization, he's telling us, has up to now been dependent on stable temperatures. So we need stable temperatures for human civilization to develop. And thanks to climate change, we don't have stable temperatures anymore. Now, of course, one difference between now and 12,000 years ago is that we have many, many more resources and technologies to try to handle unstable temperatures and heat waves and floods than we did beforehand. But that will take a lot more government action than we're currently seeing. And we need to hurry up because heat waves will become the norm. Teresa Gimeno is a climate scientist at CREAF, which is a public research center based in Barcelona. In Europe, um, the countries that will be most affected by such extreme weather events, such as heat waves, would be countries in Southern Europe. However, countries in Central Europe and even Northern Europe will also 
experienced more frequent and more severe heat waves. In 2018, for example, Northern Europe experienced a very extreme um, weather pattern with incredibly high temperatures and very scarce rainfall, including as well um, very, very large wildfires. So it's clear that the impacts of climate change are going to be experienced all across Europe. We are already taking a few steps in the good direction and there are some um, actions that are being um, put into place quite effectively, but there is still a long way that we need to um, walk through before we can we can um, be sure that we're addressing adaptation to climate change um, correctly. So for example, one of the things that we should be taking into account is the role of our ecosystems, particularly forest ecosystems. Forests are great cooling um, tools for us. This is because the vegetation takes up water from the soil and returns it to the atmosphere using energy, meaning that that energy that is used to transpire water is not used to heat up the atmosphere. So those ecosystems are incredibly precious under current climate change scenarios. So one of the most effective actions we can do to mitigate climate change is to preserve those ecosystems, enhance their health to not only mitigate climate change as we increase their ability to capture CO2, but also we enhance their cooling um, effects on the local climate. So more forests might help us handle the heat. That makes sense. I'm all in favour of rewilding. Um, another option is apparently to coat our buildings with very white paint. This was a story in the New York Times this week. So they've got the headline, to help cool a hot planet, the whitest of white coats. And they say scientists at Purdue have created a white paint that when applied can reduce the surface temperature on a roof and cool the building beneath it. Now they write this, the paint's properties are almost superheroic. It can make surfaces as much as 8 degrees Fahrenheit cooler than ambient air temperatures at midday and up to 19 degrees cooler at night, reducing temperatures inside buildings and decreasing air conditioning needs by as much as 40%. It is cool to the touch, even under a blazing sun, Dr. Wan said. Unlike air conditioners, the paint doesn't need any energy to work and it doesn't warm the outside air. The scientists at Purdue have also developed super white paint that can be used to cool vehicles, so cars and aeroplanes, and the paints could be available for commercial use within a year. And this is the really intriguing part of this New York Times piece. I've seen it sort of widely shared because it's so dramatic. Um, it's based on an interview with Jeremy Monday, a professor of electrical and computer engineering at the University of California, Davis, who researches clean technology. And the NYT write this, Monday calculated that if materials such as Purdue's ultra-white paint were to coat between 1% and 2% of the Earth's surface, slightly more than half the size of the Sahara, the planet would no longer absorb more heat than it was emitting, and global temperatures would stop rising. Dr. Monday noted that covering half the Sahara or any contiguous surface with that much radiative material shouldn't happen for a number of reasons, among them practicality, wildlife concerns, and weather disruptions caused by one region suddenly becoming much cooler. But spreading radiative cooling spots around the world could have global and local benefits, such as offsetting the urban heat island effect, which occurs because most buildings absorb and trap much more heat than natural surfaces like woodlands, water, and plants. Ash, could super white paint save the world? I think this is an example of something which would slot into 
a climate change strategy that is both about adaptation, mitigation and decarbonisation. So if you use this kind of white paint, not to just chuck it all over the areas of wilderness that we still have left on this planet, but to bring down the urban heat island effect to give people ways of cooling their homes and their buildings uh, without having to use things like air conditioners, you go, fantastic. This is going to be one string in the bow, which is going to help us um, arrest or reverse global heating. And so, of course, that's a good thing. Of course, that's a good thing. And I think that we should look at some of these technology stories as good news stories. We should go, okay, it's not totally hopeless. It should give us an awful lot of of, um, inspiration for what we should be pressuring our governments and policymakers to do. But it's not a lack of technology, which is stopping us as a planet from dealing with climate change. We have the technology that we need. We have ways of generating energy that are clean, green, and cheaper than fossil fuels. If you want to look at bringing down energy consumption in this country, well, you could do that by insulating a notoriously drafty housing stock. We could invest an awful lot more in public transport so that we can bring down road usage. Um, you know, you can encourage people to eat less meat, consume less dairy. These are all things which are available to us. We could stop giving tax breaks and bungs to the fossil fuel industry. We could stop handing out new licenses for oil and gas projects. Why aren't these things happening? It's not a lack of technology. It is not a lack of technology. It is a lack of political will. And it's because politics has been captured by the fossil fuel industry. So that's why the good things aren't happening. Uh, It's not because we don't have enough white paint. So when I read stories like this, I go, yes, feel optimistic. Yes, feel a sense of inspiration. But it's up to all of us to change quite fundamentally our relationship to politics. And I always think about What would our new cycle look like if it took climate change as seriously as it took Brexit? Like, just just think about that. Think about those years between 2016 and 2020, where politicians were getting doorstopped about Brexit all the time. Politicians couldn't fudge their answers about Brexit. If they tried, they got absolutely hauled over coals. It was the only thing on the BBC, on Radio 4, on Sky News, on Channel 4, on ITN. It led the Today programme every single morning and politicians were put under pressure. Now, when it comes to climate change, politicians are allowed to prevaricate. They're allowed to fudge. They're allowed to come out with really shit answers. And what's more, the media creates incentives politicians to prove how sensible and fiscally responsible they are by saying, actually, we're going to get rid of green investment. That's something that the Tories are doing. Labour are watering down their 28 billion commitment to green infrastructure. And just recently, you had briefing to the Times alleging that Keir Starmer had said, oh, I hate tree hoggers me. And What kind of political and media culture is that? Is that one which takes climate change really seriously? Is that a journalistic culture which is going, we're going to put politicians under pressure until what needs to 
get done, does get done? Or is this a, a culture which is still, I think, you know, complacent and disdainful and scornful? And I think the last thing that I'd say about how adaptive and mitigating measures need to fit into an overall strategy, um, white paint, amazing. Green technology, amazing. We do also have to look at the way in which consumption on a global level is so deeply, deeply skewed. Now, something you often hear, particularly when it comes to right-wingers in this country, is that they go, there are going to be too many Africans. There are going to be too many Africans in, in, in 2030. Well, what we know about, you know, the average carbon footprint of, you know, a child born in sub-Saharan Africa versus a child born in, in London or Paris or New York or whatever, is that it is disproportionately weighted towards people who live in richer countries. So we're not talking, like, talking about population issue, we're talking about a consumption issue. And I think that we'd have to really look and be quite critical of the things that we think we need to make us happy. Maybe we don't need fast fashion from Boohoo and Sheen and Pretty Little Thing. Maybe you don't need a, a dress that's going to rip after you wash it one time. Maybe the thing that you need to do is consume less, but have a life which is surrounded by products of greater quality. Maybe we need to become less consumptive and more quality focused. And we need an economy which reflects that. And I think this is bigger than a coat of paint. So yes to the paint, but you know, I'm scared, Michael. I'm scared of climate change. It's coming for us and all of our mamas. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, the optimistic side of me on climate change, I do think we're going in the right direction, right? So I do think if you compare the politics of climate change now to five years ago, the transformation is huge. And I think even people who work in the climate sphere sort of say that, right? That they wouldn't necessarily have guessed that it would be talked about this much and that governments would have, you know, for example, committed to net zero by 2050 and we've got some ambitious targets for 2030. I think we're going in the right direction. The problem is we need to go a lot faster than we are because climate change is already happening and it's already pretty terrifying, the heat. That's why, you know, I, I do pay quite a lot of attention to these technological solutions. But even, I mean, it is important to note that even, even sort of the, the scientists that were saying quite optimistic things about this white paint, they were saying this is an interim measure, right? They're not saying we can forget about carbon emissions because we'll just paint everything white. I think everyone who sort of talks about geoengineering, which is what this is essentially, sort of changing um, the temperature as opposed to taking carbon out of the, or instead of reducing our emissions, sorry, it's sort of saying, well, we'll make the climate change in terms of carbon emissions, but then we'll do something which counteracts it. Everyone who works in the geoengineering sphere seems to suggest this isn't really a long-term future that we can have because we don't quite know what effect it's going to have. So we'll, we'll use this as an emergency measure until we manage to get to net zero. But we 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 really are going to need these emergency measures. So that's why I like I'm 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 quite anti people who sort of say, oh, it's just a techno fix. We need some techno fixes, right? We need some techno fixes, at least in the short term. Let's go to our next story. Think of strikes, and you might picture rail workers or junior doctors. But Matt Damon probably wouldn't have come to mind, yet he is one of a number of Hollywood stars who walked out at the premiere of the movie Oppenheimer as it coincided with the beginning of the announcement of strike action by the Screen Actors Guild. Damon explained the issue at play on the red carpet. You have to make $26,000 a year to qualify for your health insurance, and there are a lot of people who get across that threshold through their residual payments. And so, you know, we can go long stretches without working and, and not by choice, obviously. And, and 
and we have to find a way to bridge so that so that those people who are on the bubble are taken care of and you know and it's just got to be a fair deal we got to get what we're worth and um there's there's money being made and and it needs to be allocated in a way that takes care of people who are who are on the margins matt damon there mentioned residual payments now they are the royalties um, an actor receives from the sales of a tv show or movie and but with the rise of streaming platforms they have all but disappeared and they want to renegotiate that agreement um, of course, Matt Damon is incredibly well paid. He'll do fine without residuals. But his striking is evidence that solidarity within the acting community is pretty high. Josh Hartnett, uh, who was a childhood crush of mine, is also in the Oppenheimer movie. And he made that point at the premiere. I'm not in the room, so I can't say when you see a resolution to it. But I got to say that, uh, you know, collective bargaining only works if the collective is involved. So we're all standing with all the actors out there right now who are, ma- who are doing the bargaining. And uh, we have to we have to stand with our friends who are, you know, uh, trying to make a living in a way in our industry that can be very, very tough. So this is not a guaranteed successful industry. Otherwise, everyone would do it. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of people who try very hard and and uh, are barely getting by and they need the support of everyone else who, who is doing this. Support for the strike also seems pretty unanimous. The Barbie movie had its London premiere the day before Oppenheimer. The stars and director of that movie were asked whether they would support imminent industrial action. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm very much in support of all the unions and I'm a part of SAG, so I would absolutely stand by that. I would support the actors. I'm a member of the DGA, the WGA and SAG, so I'm I'm all in on everything. I uh, love the unions, they've always protected all of the artists I know and, and I, I really want them to um, stand strong and win their fight. It's important to all of us to stand in solidarity with um, with our union. I think it's important. Our union is, the you know, the, the entity that that fights for our rights and fights for the onset rights for everybody. We live in a rapidly changing landscape and uh, it's important to show that solidarity. So you heard them mention SAG there, so that's SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. It's the first time since 1960 that the actors' strike is coinciding with a strike by the Writers Guild of America, who have been on a continuous strike for two months now. Writers are also striking over the issue of residuals. They want more royalties from the likes of Netflix and Amazon when the movies and shows they contributed towards get streamed. Writers are also concerned about being replaced by artificial intelligence. The writer's strike covers 11,000 people. The actor's strike covers 160,000. So SAG, as I say, the Screen Actors Guild is led by Fran Drescher. She said this as she announced the strike action on Thursday. We are the victims here. We are being victimized by a very greedy entity. I am shocked by the way the people that we have been in business with are treating us. I cannot believe it. The entity she was referring to is the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. That body includes the major streamers like Apple, Netflix, and Amazon. It also includes the major film studios like Paramount, Sony, and Disney. This is what Disney's CEO, Bob Iger, had to say about the strikes. Well, I think it's very disturbing to me. I, you know, we've talked about uh, disruptive forces on this business and all the challenges that we're facing and the recovery from COVID, which is ongoing. It's not completely back. This is the worst time in the world to add to that disruption. Uh, I understand uh, any, any labor organization's desire to um, 
work on the behalf behalf of its members to get you know the most compensation to be compensated fairly based on the value that they deliver. We managed as an industry to negotiate a very good deal with the Directors Guild that reflects the value that the directors contribute to this great business. We wanted to do the same thing with the writers and we'd like to do the same thing with the actors. There's a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic. Now, Bob Iger's call for realism might have been easier to swallow for writers and actors if he wasn't personally paid $20 million a year. To discuss the strikes, I'm joined by Amru Al-Kadi, a screenwriter who's a member of the Writers Guild of America. Welcome to the show. Um, can you explain the issue about residuals? So that seems to be key um, to both of these strikes, the actors and the writers. A lot of writers, you know, a couple of decades ago um, could maintain their income through residuals. So essentially what usually happens is you write an episode for a television show, um, which is quite a hard gig to get. You know, a lot of really advanced writers probably can't even get one a year, right? But the reason that being a writer can be sustainable is because every time the network syndicates that episode to another channel abroad, you're owed royalties. And to be part of the WGA, you need to earn about $40,000 a year just to keep your health insurance. And residuals has been one of the main ways that writers who might have had a you know tricky few years not being able to get work can continue their work um obviously what happens with netflix or apple or amazon or hbo max is it's a streaming platform that exists around the world so once you're paid for your script they own it in perpetuity and famously no streamer ever um reveals its uh, data count right so you know you may have written an episode that's watched a hundred million times or you know, not at all, but you've just been bought out, right? And so as a result, writing has become much more of a gig economy now. You know, you really have to work from script to script because there is no lasting residual payment. And that's sort of the fundamental issue at stake at the strike. It, it, it's made work incredibly precarious, um, fundamentally. Um, and, you know, I know writers in their 40s and 50s who've bought houses and have a comfortable life from two episodes they've written from a network show a while ago. And now you can write four episodes a year and still be working from paycheck to paycheck. So that is what streaming has really undercut. Um, and that's, I think, the core tenant of the strike. Is the demand that, you know, Netflix and Amazon and all these platforms show how many people are watching each of the shows and then give writers and actors sort of a, a fee every time it gets watched? Is that sort of what, what people want? This is sort of what's being negotiated. I mean, I can talk from personal experience. So I wrote uh, on a show for Apple about four years ago now. And just to you know, be really blunt about it, it was a 30 grand, $30,000 trip fee. That obviously sounds like quite a lot. Agent and lawyer's fees are uh, about 25% in America. You give, I think, 2 to 4% to the WGA, and then there's tax. So it comes down to about $13,000, which is about £10,000 right now. Um, that was for writing a script from October 2018 to April 2019, which is you know a lot of hours. And when you break it down per hour, it's really, really low. The script, you know, was was filmed, went on to Apple. The episode was a $4 million episode. So the writer's fee was really a very, very minimal aspect of that budget. Goes on to Apple and that's it. You know, it's it's on there. It can be watched in 190 countries. I have no idea how much is being... Uh, and I get a very, very small residual rate of about $800 a year, which is, you know, minimal 
given, you know, the proliferation of the episode and actually it was BAFTA nominated and, um, you know, there's been a lot of success. And that one was actually quite upsetting because it was a queer Arab story and that, you know, was really, really personal to me. And, you know, as the queer Arab writer, I think I was sort of paid the least. And so I think what's up for negotiation right now is, yeah, residuals based on how much the episode's been consumed, how much it's been on the air, you know, how many territories it's been in. I mean, what's kind of interesting is a show like Bridgerton, which has, we know, you know, just tens of millions of viewers. If I was to write an episode of Bridgerton, I'd probably get the same rate as I would for any other Netflix show and no residuals, even though it may have been consumed a hundred million times. And so, yeah, writers aren't getting, um, and, and actors are just not getting paid for the success of their own writing. So that's one I mean, there's loads of different aspects of the strike we can talk about as well, but that's one of the main issues at stake. I know AI is another one. So talk to me about AI. Screenwriters, I mean, are you worried that you're, you could be replaced by artificial intelligence? I think that's obviously like a headline term. That's not what I'm worried about. What's actually happening is if a show gets greenlit, you know, let's say I was to write a pilot for ABC, they greenlit it to series, all of a sudden I would have to try and get 20 episodes ready for production. And the way that you'd usually do that is hire a lot of writers, you know, maybe 10 to 15 in a writer's room to, you know, work for six months, um, you know, at a weekly rate of maybe $10,000 per, per, per writer. And every writer would also get to write a script, which might be, let's say, you know, $50,000, which means that they would get their health insurance and that would be set up for the year. That is obviously quite pricey for a studio, though they do have the money. And so what's actually being talked about is really reducing the number of writers in a writer's room. So let's say from 10 to 15 to about four to five, I would still write the pilot and AI would be used to generate really simple, well, currently quite schematic stories that followed a formula. So especially for things like cop shows or law shows, or shows where there's a lot of existing data out there. Um, it would be quite easy for AI to just generate simple story structures. And then the writers in the room would be asked to do what's called a polish, which is basically to just pump up the dialogue, make it funnier, whatever. A polish fee is about $5,000 rather than $50,000 to write a script. So the AI thing is not about being replaced, but it's about just reducing the cost of the writer for the studio. And so, you know, that's just getting rid of loads of jobs. And also, you know, polish fees. I've been I've done polish fees before, you know, $5,000 there you go. And so that is what's currently at stake. And they are not budging on that one. It's just so much cheaper for the studio. I mean, they, they ultimately need the writer to write the episode. But if it's technically a polish, they just have to pay way less um, just legally. Can I ask you about the, the unions here, I suppose? And I think many people, I mean, myself included, really, when I think of LA and I think of Hollywood, I don't think of, you know, solidarity between superstar actors and um, actors who are struggling to, to make it, I think of sort of individualism and consumerism. So what, why is it the case that it, it seems that actually solidarity is very strong in this industry? You've got Matt Damon walking out of, of, of premieres to support essentially people who are at the start of their careers or people who are struggling in their careers. How, how does the union system work in, in America? I obviously work as a writer in the UK where we don't really have unions and, um, I think what you have to understand is that like 99% of both unions are essentially just jobbing actors and writers who are basically working from room to room. Most of the writers in the Writers Guild don't have their own shows. They're working in writers' rooms and that kind of thing. Obviously, just the healthcare system is so different in America. I mean, your union is so tied to just 
your social safety net in America, of which there is so little in terms of a social safety net. And so, you know, as part of the Writers Guild, you have to earn, I think, about $40,000 a year in order to qualify for the health care that the Writers Guild provides you. And so the union is, A, really protectionist, and I've really uh, come to envy it when I work in the UK, where script rates are a complete joke. There's no kind of protections, that kind of thing. But um, they are much more of a lifeline in the US, given how precarious working life is there. And so, um, you know, I, I think people just see it as just part of their just social safety net to be in a union in the US because, you know, health would otherwise be $900 out of your own pocket a year. But more and more WGA members are losing their health insurance just because of the residuals issue. I mean, I know loads who are losing their health insurance at the moment. It's very easy to lose your health care. And also, um, I, I think the beast in uh, America is just a lot more formidable. You know, I mean, just, just, just the, the, the level at which you can be exploited as a worker. I mean, not saying that, you know, it's a socialist utopia in the UK, but, you know, health depends on it. You know, just loads of different kind of rights just depend on how your work is organized in, in the US. So the union really is, and, you know, you're dealing with such a powerful corporate entity, these studios, that I just, it's slightly different in the UK. I mean, we're dealing with the BBC who are not paying us that much anyway. So it's a slightly harder, it's slightly more manageable monster to kind of negotiate, whereas out there it's just such a kind of um, survival of the fitness. I, I think, to answer your point, the kind of American individualist sort of Darwinian landscape of what American capitalism is like means that people are so desperately tied to their union just in order to kind of survive the beast is kind of why I think people are so wedded to their union out there. Let's go to our next story. Deli Ali was once one of England's most promising footballers, winning the PFA Young Player of the Year awards in both 2016 and 2017. More recently, his game has suffered, though. And in a moving interview with Gary Neville, he has explained why. Deli Ali told Neville about his incredibly tough childhood, including him being sexually abused aged six and dealing drugs aged eight. He also explained how in his later life, he's struggled with his mental health and addiction to sleeping pills and how he's recently come out of rehab. Here's Deli Ali explaining why he is going public with his personal story now. I got out three weeks ago, I think. Uh, that reason. Three weeks ago, yeah. And... If I'm being honest, I probably wouldn't have wanted to talk about it this soon. I think maybe give it a little bit more time, but I am feeling in a really good place and I feel strong enough to do this. I think it's important. Maybe could have done with a little bit more time in terms of when I was talking about it, but unfortunately the way the world is now, you know, the tabloids they got, they found out and they was calling my team a lot and they were telling, you know, that they knew where I was and stuff. And the decision that I maybe made in the past where I didn't really care about what people thought and I didn't care about being understood. I would have just let them write what they wanted to write and, you know, put their own story on, which they do a lot of the time, but it's not the reality. And also, you know, I want to help other people to know that they're not alone in the feelings they've got and that you can talk to people. It doesn't make you weak to get help, to be vulnerable. It's, uh, there's a lot of strength in that. So to come out and to, to share my story, I'm, I'm happy to do it. 
The full 45-minute interview is on the Overlap YouTube channel. And the clip we've just shown you has gone viral on social media. Deli Ali is getting an enormous amount of support. At the same time, it doesn't seem like the tabloid press has been so understanding. Deli Ali was my phone wallpaper for a really long time. Um, it was the photo of him scoring a goal and then celebrating in front of just like a wall of furious Chelsea supporters. And I think that Deli Ali, when he was at Tottenham, he, he was just a sublime player in so many ways. And, and we really, really did love him. But the flip side of the intensity of that love in football is that players are under such intense scrutiny and judgment. And if they exhibit any of the human frailties that all of us have, either in terms of performance or attitude or they're struggling in some way, they are suddenly placed in one of the most psychologically battering situations possible because you've got all of this hate on social media. You've got just an awful amount of, of noise and criticism and vitriol coming at you from the terraces. And then you add on to that the behavior of the tabloid press I'm surprised that anyone is able to put themselves through it, let alone someone who's gone through as much as Deli Ali clearly has. I mean, the details of that interview, I think, were genuinely shocking. On the one hand, Deli Ali, he seemed like someone that we already knew so much about. He lived his life in a fishbowl because he was a professional footballer. Cameras just on him all the time. And yet there was this depth of suffering, the abuse and the exploitation that he experienced at a very young age, uh, the circumstances of the breakdown of his relationship with his parents, you suddenly realise that what you think you know from seeing someone in that fishbowl, so much of it is, is an illusion. You might have a critique of the media and you might think, oh, I'm really switched on. But for, for me, it challenged a lot of my preconceptions. I genuinely found myself questioning some of my own judgments and my own relationship to the media through watching this interview and aside from the stuff which was about his personal experiences his childhood I think one of the most heartbreaking things was that he's effectively been forced into telling his story much earlier than he would have wanted to because of tabloid press intrusion that when they knew that he was in rehab for a substance abuse problem they were calling up his team to be like we know where he is and that is kind of taunting it's like applying a form of psychological torture to someone who you already know is in this really vulnerable position because you can because you want to get the story because you want to get all of the salacious details and I think that this week of all weeks when we've seen the way in which the Hugh Edwards story has played out. As journalists, you've got to recognize that turning over somebody's life is a very, very serious thing. And I'm not saying that it means that you have to pull all of your punches and not be critical, not ask really difficult questions because of people's mental health. There's a balance to be struck there. But pounding someone, when you know that they're in recovery, you know that they're in recovery for a substance abuse problem. What do you want from that other than to destroy them psychologically and emotionally so you can film the wreckage and film the ruin. I mean, that's a story that has 
played out for so many people in the public eye, particularly people who've come from working class backgrounds, particularly people for whom fame and money happened really quickly. And again, there's this feeling that we know everything about them, but there's real pain and real trauma in their past. I believe in press freedom. Of course, I believe in press freedom. I believe in the the right of the press to hold the rich and the powerful accountable. But I, I feel deeply uncomfortable and disgusted by the fact that destroying people's lives is itself a commodity, that tabloids and paparazzi and journalists deliberately set out to destroy someone's mental well-being because that creates more of a story which enables them to sell papers, generate clicks, drive ad revenue. That's something which I think should make us all feel really, I think, uncomfortable with some of the aspects of the profession that we operate in. That was very much the narrative of the the Britney um, documentary that the New York Times put out, which was that essentially, you know, sort of the paparazzi were essentially sort of or driving her to her wit's end and then taking pictures of that and then selling the story that they in a way had created. Um, Very briefly, because we do have one more story to do this evening, but is there also something positive we can take away from that interview, which is that football, um, I mean, you could say surprisingly, but maybe not surprisingly, football has become uh, an area of culture which seems to be having quite a positive influence on on the rest of society, be it racism, be it openness about mental health. Um, it, It seems to be a source of, I suppose, is, is it okay to say a source of reason, a source of reasonableness is, is coming from Premier League football? What do you think? Ah, football, truly a land of contrasts. I mean, the answer to that is yes and no. Football is still dogged by many of the problems that have been has been associated with it, you know, since the 70s and 80s, right? There's a really toxic edge of masculinity. And also what we're seeing through many of these discussions about men's mental health, I'm thinking here not just about Deli Ali, but Danny Rose, another former Spurs player who's spoken very openly about his struggles with depression. You go, well, this is not just a reflection of culture changing more broadly around a degree of openness and candor around men's mental health, but is able to also shape and drive forward that cultural change. And I really like to see that happen. I mean, something which I've felt for a really long time is that this generation of footballers, whether that's, you know, Bakayo Saka or Tyron Mings or Deli Ali, it's so different from some of the nastiness that dominate the so-called golden generation of the early 2000s. And I'm pleased to see that cultural change. And I think that one thing that this interview can do is that it can shine a light beyond the realm of football as well. The things that Deli Ali is talking about experiences of abuse, uh, being economically exploited, dealing drugs as a child, that is a set of circumstances which affects many young people in this country. People who have experienced really challenging family circumstances, people who find themselves in situations of impoverishment and exploitation, and then get sucked into the criminal justice system. Now, that aspect wasn't part of Deli Ali's story. He had a skill that we value and we reward as a society, which is being just a a preternaturally amazing footballer. But that human story of suffering, of struggling with it, of being vulnerable, being exploited by others, and being pulled into something where if you get caught, 
your life can be ruined forever because you get a criminal record, because you're incarcerated, because you're sucked into that criminal justice system. Deli Ali's position as a footballer allows us to recognize his full humanity. So dealing drugs doesn't become the heart of the story. Actually, it's his trauma and his human experience, which is the center of that story. That is also the case for people that aren't footballers, for people who just, you know, aren't really incredible at, you know, depossessing the opponent and, and you know, scoring an excellent goal. And I think that telling those stories about people who are economically exploited is, is also a really positive thing. Let's come on to our last story. Sky News have conducted a long-running investigation into MPs' second jobs, and they've just published a new report on who's working the most outside Parliament, and perhaps more importantly, who's earning the most. We can show you the total of how much time MPs say they spend on their outside work. Nearly 89,000 hours, that's the total amount of time all MPs have worked in second jobs over the course of this Parliament, so three and a half years. Let's see how it all breaks down. These are the MPs who commit the most hours to their second jobs. Now, some names in there you might recognise. Sir Geoffrey Cox. They've become notorious for their commitment to outside work. But most have one thing in common. All the names on this list have second jobs in politics. Councillors, mayors, members of the Scottish Parliament. Double political jobbing keeping them very busy. And something else we can show you for the very first time. This is the average hourly wage of an MP in a second job. £233 per hour. How does that compare to the rest of the population? Well, it's a lot higher. The average hourly wage for an MP in a second job is over 17 times the average rate for a member of the UK public, and more than 22 times the minimum hourly wage. Which MPs are getting the most cash for the hours they work? This leaderboard shows you that. These 20 MPs have the highest hourly rates in Parliament. The name at the top is no surprise. Boris Johnson, now free to spend even more time earning big bucks away from Westminster. The second name on this list is the shortest-lived PM in British history. But that has hardly dented her earnings power, Liz Truss. Her most lucrative work since leaving number 10 has been a speech in Taiwan, paid at a rate of £20,000 an hour, nearly one and a half thousand times the UK average hourly wage for her insights into global diplomacy. And that's part of a very common pattern. MPs who've served in government dominate this leaderboard. 18 of the MPs with the highest hourly earnings this parliament have government experience. Clearly a very lucrative addition to any parliamentarian CV. So Ash, Boris is on 20 grand an hour, Liz Truss on 15 grand an hour. Uh, which of those do you find more shocking? I don't find any of it shocking, really, because this whole MP second jobs thing, and in particular, the after dinner speaker circuit, is one way in which what would otherwise be called corruption gets laundered into respectability. Because who would pay even a penny for the insights of Liz Truss or Boris Johnson? I mean, really, what are they talking about? you know, how to lose an economy in 10 days, um, you know, how to squander an ATC majority. No, the reason why they get paid these vast sums of money is because implicitly there's a kind of quid pro quo, which is 
you're purchasing access to somebody who you're hoping still has some kind of political juice. So either they're influential with ministers, with MPs, access to parliament, or I think in Boris Johnson's case, some people think, well, you know, maybe he'll become leader of the Conservative Party again. Maybe he'll become prime minister again. It's it's a way of buying political influence and access, but because you dress it up in the guise of going, no, 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 that they're, they're, they're providing a job or a service for us. You're allowed to see these vast sums of money change hands without it becoming either a problem for, you know, the parliamentary regulator or many people in the media who just sort of see it as like, well, you know, this is the establishment. This is the world we move in. Important people mingle. Money changes hands. We ask no questions. I mean, anyone paying Liz Truss £20,000 an hour because they think she might become PM again clearly has more money than sense. Uh, <laughs> I think that analysis was pretty spot on. Um, Ash, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you for having me. Also, look, I took your advice. There's a picture there. It's going to go on the wall. Every time I come on the show, I'm going to take Michael's interior decor advice and you're going to see it in the shop. Yeah, I want a new item each week. I suppose there's nothing you can do about that radiator, which... You know, it's not giving really, but you can't get rid of it. So that's fine. Maybe you'll, 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 you'll install a heat pump at some point and we can get rid of it. But <laughs> until then, it's fine. We're okay. Um, thank you everyone for watching this evening. Come back on Monday for another live stream from 6pm. Have a fantastic weekend. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.